turn your Bible, if you have one, to Psalm 16. The text is also printed in the bulletin. We're back in our series on uh, Psalms. And it's, uh, it's been such a long time. It's been like a few weeks, so let's remind ourselves what we're about when we're talking about the Psalms. Uh, <clears throat> the Psalms are basically prayer songs. Uh, they're God's word to us spoken to us so that we would make them our words to him. He's given us words to say to him in our relationship with him. So it's, I think it's kind of like a father and an older brother teaching us how to, how to speak and how to sing and how to be in conversation with the family. Um, the father says, repeat after me, and then waits eagerly for our response And then the older brother comes alongside and says, here, let's say it together. And he leads us in our prayer songs. And so the older brother is Jesus, God's son who became a human so that he could take words like these on his own lips, uh, relating to God the Father as one of us and on our behalf, and then inviting us to join with him. Uh, in his relationship to God. And that's the heart of Christianity. Jesus' relationship to God. That's the most important part of Christianity, is the relationship that Jesus has to the Father. And uh, the heart of it, the heart of Christianity, is that relationship that's shared with us. Shared with us. We're brought into it. And that's really the only way we can rightly pray these psalms and sing these, these prayer songs. It's by hearing our older brother Jesus use them in his relationship with the Father, and then entering into them in his name through faith and and joining him as he uses the Psalms. So so as we read the Psalms, we usually have to pay attention to a few different voices. So there's the voice of the original author of the Psalms, and a lot of times it's King David. It has been, especially at the beginning of the Psalms, and it is today, uh, he's the original author of the Psalms, King David. His voice. And then there's the voice of the great King Jesus, who's the one who really prays these psalms. And then there's our own voice as we start to join with Jesus in his prayer of these psalms. And so Psalm 16, which we'll look at in just a minute, it's a prayer song about the happiness that comes from being confident about one's relationship with God and being assured of the resurrection, that this relationship that we have with God will last forever. Uh, The confidence and the happiness that comes from knowing that, we we can have this confidence, we can have this assurance, and therefore we can have this happiness because of Jesus. And so let's uh, let's join him in praying this psalm. Let's let's pray together, and then we'll read Psalm 16. Father, you sent your Son to be our Savior, to be the light of the world. You've uh, revealed yourself through him to all the peoples of the earth. One of the things that we think about at Epiphany, his appearance, not just to the people of Israel, but to all the peoples, all nations have seen him and heard him, and therefore we've seen and known and heard from you. And so we pray that um, that revelation would shape all of our reading of all the scriptures, especially this morning as we come to Psalm 16, we pray that you would help us to use 
this psalm through faith in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, to Yahweh, You are my Lord, my Master. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French mathematician and philosopher, uh, he wrote one of his famous works. It's called The Pensées. It's uh, French for thoughts. He's just got a bunch of paragraph or sentence long uh, thoughts that he's written down. Uh, One of the things that he says, it's sort of famous, Uh, is all men seek happiness. All men, all people, seek happiness. There are no exceptions, he says. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. All people seek happiness. Maybe you would call it something else. Maybe you wouldn't like to say that about your own life pursuits that you're seeking happiness. Uh, but I don't think anyone can get around it. We can have a longer conversation about that. Join us for sermon discussion uh, if you want. We're just going to assume that uh, all men seek happiness. Maybe for you, maybe for you it's base pleasures or simple comforts. Maybe it's the satisfaction of power or fame. Maybe it's the exhilaration of adventure or romance. Maybe it's the cheerfulness of good humor and a positive attitude, or at least not the misery of depression. Maybe it's the contentment of a life well lived. Maybe it's the, the, the deep satisfaction of having a home and raising a herd of children or yaks. <laughs> Maybe it's the, the really strange kind of gratification that comes from being altruistic. Uh, whatever the case, at root, Pascal is right. All men seek happiness, even Jesus. Even Jesus, the author of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 12:2, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He suffered greatly. This is the, the culmination of his life's work was to suffer on the cross, and he did so for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. And now, the author of Hebrews says, now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is where Psalm 1611 says that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That was out in front of Jesus. And you know what? 
God is completely all right with joy and happiness. More than fine with it. Actually, God himself is eternally happy. An eternally delighted being. Joy is one of the primary fruits of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think we can say that God the Holy Spirit is divine joy personified. So there's no problem at all in the Bible with God. There's no problem at all with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Maybe that surprises you. Maybe you think it's not what God's about or the Bible's about. There's, there's no problem with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The only problem, really, is when we seek those things, when we seek happiness apart from our relationship with God, our Creator and our Lord. In Psalm 16, uh, David puts it this way. It says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. If you're looking for good, if you're looking for gladness and joy and happiness and fulfillment, apart from God, there's nothing out there. It's not going to happen. I have no good apart from you. And then in verse 4 he says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their sorrows shall multiply. So again, Blaise Pascal said, God alone is man's true good. And since man abandoned him... It is a strange fact that nothing in nature has been found to take his place. Stars, sky, earth, elements, plants, cabbages, leeks, animals, insects, calves, serpents, fever, plague, war, famine, vice, adultery, incest. Since losing his true good, man is capable of seeing it in anything, even his own destruction, although it is so contrary at once to God, to reason, and to nature. We look for it anywhere, even in leaks, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Augustine, who's a third, uh, third, fourth century bishop of uh, Hippo, which is presently in Algeria, he said this, is famous, uh, this saying of his, he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Hearts find no satisfaction apart from God. Or Augustine in another place said, He, after all, is enough for you. Apart from him, nothing is enough for you. That's how God has made us. The problem is that our hearts refuse to rest in God alone. We refuse to believe and live as if God were enough for us. We suspect the best case scenario, yeah, he's real good, he's real nice, but he'll eventually turn out to be a bit boring, and we can't imagine how our interest in him could be sustained endlessly. Haven't you ever struggled with the idea that, that an eternity in heaven will eventually be boring? <laughs> so we seek lasting happiness everywhere but in our relationship with God. As God says in Jeremiah's prophecy, we've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and we've hewed out broken cisterns for ourselves that can hold no water. It can't satisfy us. We turn away from the source of life. We turn away from eternal refreshment in God. And we run on a wild goose chase after false gods that we made up, hoping to wring some satisfaction out of them. And the author of Hebrews calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin are a far cry from fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. 
You want to know what the only thing more fun than sin is? The only thing more fun than sin is not sin. (laughs) Not sin. Uh, The only thing more happy, the only thing more joyful than sin is communion with Yahweh, the ever-living God. Living with Him. Dwelling with Him. In fact, communion with God is the only alternative to sin that there is. That's really what our psalm is about. It's a whole forever life lived in God's presence rather than apart from it. So this is where it becomes obvious that we need to hear this psalm as a prayer from the heart, from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, because, because this psalm doesn't really reflect how we are naturally. This, because we sin, we chase after other gods, our sorrows multiply because of it, and this is just foreign language to us. We need to hear Jesus Christ speaking this psalm. But listen to the voice of Jesus when you hear it. <clears throat> he says in verse 2, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Hear Jesus saying that. Jesus is the only one for whom this has been an utterly true declaration every moment of his life. Verse 3, Jesus loves what God loves. He loves God's people. He delights in them. Verse 4, Jesus never sinned. He never gave his soul to idols, to false gods. never pursued his happiness his satisfaction, his fulfillment, his significance in anything other than the one true God. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus always listens to God and always does what he says. His whole life is shaped by God. So Jesus is the only human being who, who ever lived, whose life, his whole life, inside and out, Heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly resonates with God's life. Perfectly and always. Therefore, because he's that person, therefore his joy in God is the only full and everlasting joy. Jesus is the one who bursts into song. Here in verse 5, it says Yahweh. No other God but this one. Yahweh is my chosen portion in my cup. He's what I've always wanted. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So that's all language describing a family inheritance. You know, the sort of things we squabble about with our siblings after the parents die. Describing a a family inheritance and Jesus totally hit the jackpot is what he's saying. Because with earthly inheritances, you, you receive your parents' possessions after they die. But God never dies. And he has nothing greater to give than, than himself, even if he bequeathed the entire universe to his son. So the inheritance that the psalmist is singing about, that Jesus is singing about, is so excited about, the inheritance is the ever-living God himself. Ever living. And it points back to the time this language does, uh, to, to when Yahweh, the one true God, he led his people 
out of Egypt. He led them into the promised land. And he allotted each tribe its own portion of the land, its own portion, its own lot, the lines drawn out, the inheritance for each of these tribes. Except, says in Numbers 18, except Yahweh said to Aaron, Aaron who's of the tribe of Levi and the priests, he said to him, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So maybe when you're first reading that, you think, man, Aaron and the Levites got gypped. They're like homeless now. Uh, they could have had real estate like all the others. They got the real good stuff, right? The real estate. And here they just have some kind of relationship with God, I guess. Um, but this prospect absolutely thrills Jesus because he loves God best of all. And it's natural for us to be like, not like Jesus, but like the two lost sons in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. If we're just looking to the moment when dad dies so we can get his stuff, get him out of the way, we get his stuff. We get to enjoy that. That's what we really want. But Jesus wants the father. God makes Jesus happy. And Jesus gets God forever. Therefore, he says in verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being, this word uh, could be better translated glory, my substance, everything about me rejoices. So, so in case you're thinking that Jesus' joy, I mean, which is on display here, maybe hard for us to relate to, uh, in case you're thinking it has nothing to do with you, really it's sort of irrelevant because you know you haven't loved God like that, or uh, that you're unworthy to be joyful like Jesus because you know you've sinned against God, or that it's unrealistic uh, to have that kind of joy because you, you just can't seem to stop seeking your happiness apart from God, looking at other things. You're going to walk out of here, and you're going to do, do it all over again. Um, here's the good news of Christianity for you. Jesus has done everything necessary to share his relationship with God with us. So you'd be right to think that you don't deserve that. <laughs> that. That you don't deserve to live with God forever in joy. That that's foreign to your nature. That's right. In our sin, we've brought down misery. We've brought down death on ourselves. But Jesus stepped in to intercept our eternal death before we could receive it. And even when he faced that death on the cross, the most terrible moment, the worst thing that ever happened... Even when he faced that, he had joy in front of him because he knew that God would raise him from the dead. So he could say, as he continues in verse 9, my flesh also dwells secure. It's not just some ethereal, spiritual relationship that he's talking about having with God. He's talking about my flesh, this stuff, my body, because... You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The future was bright for Jesus, even though right in front of him was his cross. He was secure, even about his life in the body, because he knew God would raise him bodily from the grave. Jesus knew 
there would be a resurrection for him. And so he had perfect confidence, even as he's staring death right in the face, he had perfect confidence that he would live forever with God and that his eternal inheritance would be the ever-living God himself. That's how the apostles applied this psalm, Psalm 16. In the book of Acts, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, and Paul says in Acts 13, that basically both say the same thing. Uh, here it is that David uh, has, wrote, has written this psalm. He says, obviously David wasn't just talking about himself here. Because we have David's grave, and his body has decayed in the ground. So this psalm, from his lips, it must have been prophesying about someone else. David is a prophet. He's talking about someone else. And that someone else is Jesus, whom God raised from the dead and seated at his right hand, brought him right into his presence, right into eternal glory, bodily. The apostles saw that this psalm has to be fulfilled in Jesus. It can't be fulfilled in anybody else. And thank the Lord, we can say this same psalm, and every aspect of it can become ours, as a prayer because it was fulfilled in Jesus through our relationship with him. Even though so much of it is foreign to our nature as sinners, so much of it is foreign to our nature as sinners, because Jesus prayed it, we can pray it. And that's how our whole life with God works. Because it's true of Jesus and his relationship with, with the Father, it's true of us because we're united to Jesus. So that everything that's true of him is also true of us. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus had this confidence and security and assurance, even as he faced death, complete confidence, he was going to live forever after that, we can have confidence and security and assurance as, even as we face death. Because Jesus inherits the ever-living God, we also will inherit the ever-living God. Because Jesus lives at God's right hand, we will live at God's right hand. And Jesus says just as much in John 14. He says, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, Jesus says. Jesus really knows what it means, and he completely resonates with this prayer. He knows it better than, than we can in this life. He says in, in verse 11 to, to his father, <clears throat> You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He knows what that means more than we, we do. But throughout your life, he is bringing you along to share in the fullness of all of it. You will know what it means. The very same fullness that he himself enjoys, his relationship with the Father, that's yours. So let's back up to the beginning of the psalm. The first thing Psalm 16 is, is a prayer to the only one who's our refuge to preserve us, to safeguard us. So when you look at the lives of all the people who have prayed this prayer, um, most of whom are dead in history, and especially when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, you come to realize that this prayer, this asking for preservation and safeguarding, it doesn't mean preserving us from going through very difficult things in life. It doesn't mean safeguarding us from suffering and death. 
And you're praying, preserve me, O God, for you my refuge. It doesn't mean you're asking to be spared from those things. It doesn't, it's not a promise that you will be. It can't mean that because Jesus' confidence was not that God would preserve his life from the cross. That wasn't his prayer. Jesus' confidence was in the resurrection. It was in the resurrection, which only comes after death. You can't have resurrection without there first being a death. And his great desire was to live that whole forever life in God's presence. And the path of that life, the path of true life, the path of eternal life with God, it went through suffering and death first. Went through, went through that uh, with Jesus. It'll go through suffering and death with us. And again, thank the Lord that Jesus went through that. That Jesus went to the cross because he went for us. Thank the Lord that he wasn't spared suffering and death, but that he endured it for the joy of the resurrection that was set before him. So this psalm helps us to pray differently. It helps us to pray like Jesus Sure, I think we'll probably still pray for easy, comfortable, interesting lives. But when we pray this psalm, we'll pray for more joy than that. We'll pray for the the same preservation Jesus prayed for. We'll rely on the same unstoppable resurrection power that Jesus relied on. We'll know the same refuge in God that Jesus knew. We'll delight in the same beautiful inheritance that thrilled Jesus, we'll find all our good and all our gladness in a whole forever life in God's eternal presence, just like Jesus has. Come whatever may, you could have confidence about that. And anytime you wonder about that, anytime you doubt, anytime you're asking, can it really all be true for me? You just pray this psalm and you remember, because it's already happened for Jesus, then yes, it's true for you. Your father gave you these words because he wants you to pray this way, and your older brother has led the way for you. Thank the Lord that we can learn to pray like that. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> father, these, these things do seem to be too, uh, uh, too good to be true for us. And when we think about ourselves and just in and of ourselves, it's right. Uh, we don't deserve these things. We don't deserve your love, your grace, uh, yourself given to us, your Holy Spirit, your Son. Um, you in eternity. We don't deserve these things. We thank you that uh, Jesus' relationship with you is perfect and that he lived it on our behalf and for our sake, and he shares it with us. We thank you that we can enter right into Jesus' relationship with you as the perfect son with the Father, that we can enter into it um, at any moment through faith. We just receive it freely as a gift. We pray that you would uh, embed this reality deep in our hearts so that we can know the joy of facing all of life with confidence because of the, the full assurance of your love and confidence and security that we have, knowing that we will be raised from the dead, that nothing in this life can, can stop that because of who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.